Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 9. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I'll be talking about Fast Act legislation, zombie PE funds, selling to an operator versus a PE fund, recent deal closings, and a comment on an upcoming franchise M&A deal flow. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find all of our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, hello, everybody, and hope you're doing well. I've just come back from a couple of weeks of traveling. I was at the Sonic National Convention in San Diego and then swang by, had a wedding and saw some, you know, some clients in the Nashville, Tennessee, Middle Tennessee area. Also was down in the, the Gulf Coast area a little bit too, doing some work. So uh, it's been a fun little journey here in the last couple of weeks. I've got a son who I've given him the disease of being a Tennessee Titans NFL fan. <laughs> I tell him, I said, son, you're going to be a Tennessee Titans fan. It's a long, miserable road with a lot of pain and suffering. But we got uh, took him to his second and third game ever. He's about to be 16, but we went to watch the Titans get beat in New Orleans. And if you hadn't been to the New Orleans Saints Stadium, man, those fans are crazy and loud and I mean, I could barely hear myself think. And you see those TV commercials where there's like 2,000 people in the crowd and you're the only one and you and your whoever's next to you with the opposing team colors, right? And you feel like your life's being threatened. <laughs> and so that we found ourselves in a section like that where there's like 2,000 Saints fans and we're the Titans fans, the only two with our light blue shirts on, you know, and they all have their dark black and gold. And so it was hilarious. But they were very gracious but loud fans. And then we... Went up to Nashville and watched the Titans play San Diego Chargers, which was, uh, oh, pardon me, Los Angeles Chargers now, which was a fun game. Titans won in overtime. So we've been traveling around a little bit, and in upcoming weeks here, I'll be at the Taco Bell convention, Popeye's event. Actually, the Burger King convention is this week, and then we end up on the rotation with RFDC Restaurant Finance and Development Conference in Las Vegas in uh, November, like I think it's 11th, 12th, 13th, or 13th, you know, 12th, 13th, and 14th of the month of November. So, and that'll be kind of the end of convention season. And so I think I told you on a prior episode, I kind of uh, doing a panel out there at Restaurant Finance and Development Conference. I'm going to try to get that as a podcast later on this year, maybe in the December timeframe, so you guys can listen to it. Uh, last year, I was told it was the most heavily attended panel at the conference, and there's over 3,000 people there that go. So, should be good stuff, and I'm going to be opining with a couple of other folks on the state of the M&A market. A lot of this you will have already heard, but there'll be some uh, other folks there with some good perspectives and opinions. So please tune in to later this year. I was going to do a webinar and make it a podcast, too, on the real estate world and had a couple of decent folks lined up from the REIT community and uh, the 1031 community to talk about cap rates. But honestly, as I started kind of digging into it a little bit, the news isn't all that newsworthy. I mean, you know, the REITs that, that we're talking to are doing deals, but they're not doing a whole lot of deals in the franchise space right now because cap rates have come up a lot. Their risk tolerances have dropped, a, you know, a lot. And as interest rates have moved up, I think the message from the REIT community is they're being conservative. You know, most of them are. And the big REITs that buy big swaths of real estate are very interest rate sensitive 
Whereas smaller deals that are out in the marketplace where you have someone selling one or two or three you know, pieces of real estate that they might own. And you've heard me say this before, those deals are, are tax motivated, 1031 motivated. And those tax motivations are very, very powerful from people, especially from California, who are trying to defer huge tax bills. So those are a little um, less interest rate sensitive and are you know, nonetheless uh, under pressure a little bit right now. Cap rate spreads have, have come up probably between 60 to 100 basis points over this year. And I think that's a pretty modest number. I think it's going to look a lot worse going forward into 2024. I bet we will probably six months from now be saying that we're at 120 to 150 basis points. I mean, we have to be, right? I mean, interest rates are almost, to borrow any kind of money, at almost 8%. I just saw some sort of an article on CNBC or somewhere, Bloomberg, that was talking about, you know, home mortgages have hit 8% now for the first time in however long. So just directionally, uh, interest rates going up affects the borrowing power on real estate transactions, squeezes the cap rates and makes them less favorable. If you're a seller of real estate, it's a pretty stark deal, right? Like when cap rate goes from 6% to 7%, and I'm just using just simple math, I mean, you lose roughly 15% of the value of your real estate. So it's a pretty huge swing in a short amount of time. So as you think about your real estate portfolio and your holdings, you know, that, that it's it's a germane time to be kind of considering your long-term future. Obviously, it's difficult to refinance right now at comfortable rates. And my guess is that the sale leaseback market has kind of taken some time to catch up to the real estate market. So maybe some deals and some some of you who have done real estate transactions might have found slightly more favorable sale leaseback terms than financing terms if you're buying and borrowing for real estate instead. But but my guess is that arbitrage is probably coming down as we start seeing, just anecdotally from talking with friends and clients and brokers and things like that, start seeing inventory kind of pop up and price reductions on real estate, commercial real estate dropping or increasing as price reductions are, are happening. So that arbitrage between doing a sale leaseback and borrowing money to finance real estate instead and holding it and owning it, that might be lessening as we move into 2024. Okay, so no webinar or, or podcast on real estate. I'm just going to talk about a couple of items this week that may be interesting to you. A couple of things that kind of caught my attention. There's been some uh, quite a bit of uh, noise about AB 257, which is the California's uh, Fast Act le- legislation. Right? You probably heard about it, read about it, but I'm going to do a yeoman's job of talking through it with you. But essentially, a nine-person council was set up in California, appointed by Governor Newsom to fight for uh, a higher wage in California for fast food workers. And this is for all, I believe, you know, like I think it's all chains that have at least 60 locations nationwide that are defined within a kind of a fairly narrow definition of, you know, fast food and QSR. And the legislation is basically this. Minimum wage, I believe, in California is $15.50, set to go up to $16 on January 1st. The legislation is... I believe it's sitting on Newsom's desk, right? I, I think, and it's um, it says that April first of two thousand and twenty-four, the wage floor for California fast food workers with at least sixty locations nationwide, that wage will be twenty dollars. And then from twenty twenty-five through twenty twenty-nine, I believe that the council will will have the authority to approve hourly minimum wage increases annually at the lower of either three point five percent or the annual change in the CPI or consumer price index each year. So think about it. If you do 3.5%, 
And they can do that through 2029. 3.5% compounded growth of $20 to 2029 gets you to about 25 bucks. So it would be by 2029, you know, $20, $20 um, for minimum wage starting soon within six months, and then probably around $25 or maybe a little bit more by the time we hit 2029 in the state of California. A couple of things. You may say, I'm not in California. I don't care. Disturbing legislation, blah, blah, blah. If you do operate restaurant businesses or franchise businesses, not even restaurants, but other businesses, right? Because you're going to have to compete for labor against you know increasing wages. My commentary is that this is a, a little bit of a domino effect that's probably going to find itself happening in some other dark blue states. Like, you know, who knows? I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise to see Oregon and Washington and New York and New Jersey and Minnesota and some of these places that probably Illinois uh, that just have notorious kind of policies like this. So it's kind of a, I'm hoping it's not the tip of the iceberg or a domino effect kind of thing, but it's possible, right? And that's why all of us should be concerned about California because it sets a precedent that could move its way throughout the country to other states. And why do we care one way or the other? Now, I, I have always cited in many, you know me well enough if you listen to this podcast, right? Like my personal views are I side with franchisees. You know, that's kind of where I make my bet every day. I've always loved franchisees and, and the franchisees that have helped make the American dream happen across the country. I respect them and I respect the entrepreneurship and zeal that they have for their businesses. And so I see things through their eyes. This is obviously a bad situation for a franchisee, and I would submit to you a very bad situation for a consumer, too. Now, the winners of these of the fast act type of legislation are the worker. So the worker gets more money, right? The franchisor is also a winner. And that's why they're really, in my opinion, not a fair person to be sitting at any table in any negotiation over labor. Because guess what happens to a franchisor that doesn't actually operate company locations in those markets? They actually get a fixed percentage of the gross revenue, right? Of the gross revenue or net revenue, depending on the brand. But let's just say the gross revenue that a franchisee brings in. So if a franchisee brings in, let's just say $100 in revenue, they get, let's say if they have a 5% royalty, they get $5. Well, if a franchisee now has to pay their employees more, and so they have to raise their prices and they raise their prices just, and they still can't be as profitable as they were prior to the big wage increase. So now they raise their prices 10% and now they have $110 where they used to have $100 of revenue. Well, the franchisor gets $5.50 instead of $5. So they actually are pulling more profit. So their incentive, if we assume that franchisors act in the best interest of the franchisees, which I think is a wild assumption, then we would say that their first obligation is going to be to keeping their brand, their trademark, and their franchisees healthy enough to continue to pay them royalties, right? So they do have some incentive to make sure franchisees' profitability stays there because they don't want a franchisee not paying them royalties, right? But other than that, they want higher royalties and more profitability. And the ones that are public can can say, hey, our stock, you know, our, our income's rising. So, so unless, of course, they are actually operating those stores themselves, which in many brands, and this is a topic for another conversation, in many brands, you know, 90% is a round number or 95% franchised in many systems. You know, some systems are 100% franchised, others are 95% franchised. The model in, you know, Yum Brands is somewhere collectively in the mid-90s 
Some brands are closer to 100% franchise. Think like a like a Jimmy John's or like a IHOP or something like that. Those brands are more heavily franchised. And then you have like Arby's, which is more of like a brand that's, I mean, these are rough numbers, right? But more would be like 50-50 franchise owned or company operated. And then you have like, you know, Darden, some of, you know, their concepts are almost all 100%. Chipotle is 100%. Chipotle is going to take a, a whacking here with this fast stack legislation because they're headquartered in California. They're publicly traded stock and they operate 100% of the restaurants. So they're going to feel the burden of this legislation. But just make that known to you. So like the franchisor and the worker are the big people who benefit from these policies. And then I guess also the politicians and the ones that do not benefit are the consumer and the franchisee. And we've talked about the franchisee, right? I'll say a little bit more. There was someone, I just saw something come across my feed talking about McDonald's, somebody at McDonald's or, or someone doing the calculations saying that this is going to cost an average drop of $250,000 of an EBITDA per restaurant per McDonald's in the state of California. Holy cow. I can only imagine if a McDonald's is doing, you know, on average three and a half to $4 million in sales and they have maybe like you know, 12 or 13% margins. Let's just say that they're doing having $400,000 in EBITDA, right? Or cash flow at the store level. And they're saying that it's going to drop by $250,000. I can't confirm whether that's accurate or not, but that's losing like 60% of their EBITDA overnight. You're not going to be able to price yourself into a higher Big Mac in that situation, right? So what's going to happen is the price goes up immediately, but it can't go up like to, you know, Big Mac might be selling for what, 350 might not, you know, they'll probably put it up to 425, but they can't put it up to $5 immediately, but they'll, but they'll do it. It'll be $5 in a year or two and they'll keep raising the prices as they're able. So really what happens is the franchisee takes a massive whack. The franchisee's business is certainly less sellable, you know, right? Until the, at least in the short term, until they can stabilize the EBITDA by right, raising prices enough. And then the third thing that happens is, is clearly the, um, the consumer pays way more money, right? I mean, you, all of a sudden you have a $5 Big Mac or a $4.25 Big Mac, whatever the, whatever the price is. So um, those are the kind of the seesaw effects. Now, it is interesting that once, here's some hope, in the state of California, once these franchisees take the lashings for their dropping, crashing EBITDA and all the issues associated with it, and once they raise their prices you know, so much, and once the consumer's adjust to having to pay way more for their food, so much so that they can't really afford to eat it, right? Once they do that, then there's a lot of certainty. And then probably valuations in California will normalize quite a bit. You know what I mean? And and it could be optimistic. So I just kind of make that commentary that it's not a long-term negative view. If you can get the labor increases to stop and you can price yourself to hurdle those labor increases over the medium term and longer term, it might actually be fine. And buyers are typically, of anything, are typically myopic. What I mean by that is like, probably heard me say this before, like think about someone who's buying like a house. You have this beautiful house in a wonderful location, great layout, but the countertops are yucky looking, right? So they walk in, they see the countertops in the kitchen and they say, I don't like the house. You know what I mean? But they can't envision just replacing the countertops in the house is perfect, right? So buyers typically are myopic and if they don't have full information, they don't act and react in positive ways affecting the price typically. So that certainty will need to come in the form of higher prices and stabilized EBITDA for those businesses that try to transact in that state. But watch to see the next domino that falls the next state. Okay, a lot about that. You know, I can get a little fiery about it because I see the effects that my brethren franchisees have to bear 
by these political uh, things that happen. Okay, number two, zombie PE funds. You're like, what the heck is a zombie PE fund? A zombie PE, I just caught this story on Bloomberg, maybe, I don't know, five or six days ago, and I read it. I was like a small business people are. I was awake at three in the morning and I'm just like trying to find some peace and just reading some Bloomberg articles. And that was what popped up. And I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Never heard this before. So I'm going to do a yeoman's job of it, but it has some tentacles into the franchise space. So that's why I want to talk about it. Do your own research, you know, read up on it if you want to. But um, private equity firms, it's a $12 trillion industry, evidently. And some firms, a growing percentage of them are lumbering on years and years without any new fundraising in sight because their existing funds are full of investments that have not been able to be sold because uh, they either bought it too high or maybe they bought it and they ran it into the dirt and can't sell it. Maybe they actually have just owned it a short amount of time and interest rates have caused these funds to be unable to unload them at the price that they bought them at because valuations have changed or the debt situation's bad or you know, there might be some like consumer demand that's caused the particular industry they're invested in or the particular company they're invested in to like not perform over a longer term. And these are called evidently zombie private equity funds. And now it sounds like there's going to be a shakeup as these money managers continue to operate these funds they want to get out of and they can't raise more money through a new fund because their existing fund can't be shut down because they can't sell the assets out of it. And then the people who own these assets, you know, the limited partners in these private equity funds, which are typically like pension funds and, you know, think about like the whoever Nevada teachers union, you know, that invests 5% of their teachers union pension fund into a private equity company, right? So they're faced with a hard choice. Do they continue to keep their investment in these zombie private equity funds that are just open year after year after year, but not growing and not returning money to shareholders? Or do they just sit there and wait indefinitely? Or do they sell these assets at a discount? And then evidently there's a secondary market for other managers and other funds, private equity funds to buy these assets or to buy these funds themselves from these quote, quote, zombie private equity firms, which is an informal name, and buy them at a discount, which could be 50% or more, which I think is what we may start to see maybe as an alternative to bankruptcy in cases where private equity funds are looking to unload their assets so they can start afresh and start a new fundraising effort and not have to continue. And this article goes on to say that private equity groups that have these long assets that they can't sell for whatever reason are obviously unable to raise new funds. And as they're unable to raise new funds, they don't generate enough fees to keep the talent pool of executives there. And so it's a retention thing as well. If this is a trend that Bloomberg's talking about, and it may be a growing trend in a difficult market, how does this affect us in our in our franchise business? I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm not a doom and gloomer. As a matter of fact, I'm friends with many of the private equity and family office groups that have been the biggest acquirers of these businesses over the last five to six years. But it is notable that we do have a big intrusion of those types of firms in the franchise space. And this isn't just restaurant franchising. It's all across the board, right? So like anything in life, I mean, you know, no one's going to be 100% correct. So, I mean, like, what was it? Like President Reagan had 70% of the vote and that was like the highest ever in the 80s. I don't know. But uh, so that means 30% of the country hated him, right? And didn't vote for him. So like, it's the same thing with investing. You're not going to hit it 100% of the time. If there have been 50 entrance, private equity entrance into the franchise space over the last five to seven years, it would not be a surprise 
that 10 to 15 to 20 percent of them, you know, aren't performing well. And maybe half of those, maybe five to 10 of those can't sell their assets or trying, but can't sell their assets. And what are they going to do with those those franchise assets that they have that presumably they followed a playbook of like selling all the real estate, cutting costs, trimming out overhead, delaying major CapEx, maybe even delaying new store development and remodeling. And then it kind of starts to spiral if then they get into a brand that, that's not performing well for whatever reason at the top end. Maybe the leadership at the franchisor level is not good, or maybe there's been some trends, or maybe there's a competitor like it's in the chicken space and there's like two or three new up and coming chicken concepts that are taking share from you, whatever the case is. I know that they're out there. There are some of these franchisees, private equity franchisees and family office franchisees that are, I don't want to say upside down on their assets or investments, but are in a having to be in a long game because uh, they've got a business that's not performing the way they thought it would, or it was performing. A lot of it could be a macroeconomic, and they're forced to continue their management of those funds beyond their initial expectations. And it's raising, uh, making it difficult for them to raise new money to buy new franchise businesses. It's probably not a pronounced trend right now, but it may just keep an eye on it because what it may do, and I'm going to dovetail this into my next kind of idea for today. What it may do is it may make private equities offers in a down market a little less attractive than it was in an up market because there are a few of them less, right? Because they can't make offers because they can't close on their new funds because they have assets in their old funds. Maybe that's the case. Or their limited partners are becoming more and more conservative because the general temperature of the environment we're in right now isn't the best. And I think we are starting to see that there's, even though there's plenty of liquidity for selling these franchise assets, there may be fewer private equity, pure private equity players making aggressive offers on these businesses than there used to be. And so that's kind of a just a general possible observation. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, right? Like who are the people that are the most likely to buy things at reasonable but not high prices, regardless of the environment? It's usually independent operators, multi-generation franchisees who don't have outside investors, people who see an asset and they like it because it's nearby and they grew up in that hometown and they want to acquire it. They have a longer view and they say, hey, I've seen the ups and downs and I'm not wed to a five-year selling horizon. I'm going to own this for 30 or 40 years. I can see my way into the changes in this business that are going to have to occur to be more profitable in the future. I can overlook some of the, the current environment. So those types of buyers, which are generally first or second generation non-equity controlled franchisees, have largely over the last four or five years been losing out on deals and transactions to the private equity groups who were very financially savvy. Family offices too, but they are very savvy with real estate. They're very savvy with borrowing money. They are getting big assets under their belt. And by doing that, they're doing term B loans and getting loans that don't amortize, that have interest-only loans, right, for indefinitely at really low rates. And so they use the sale leaseback market very wisely. And from a financial perspective, they're able to pay 10 to 15% more than maybe an operator would be comfortable paying because they can squeeze they can squeeze the lemon a little harder than a franchisee can from a financing perspective. And so that's what's happened over the four or five years, you know, leading up to maybe last year and this year. And I think what we're seeing now, at least on our limited scale, and, and look, my viewpoint is not perfect, but 
have started to see it. Like, I think the, the reemergence of the operator as a viable buyer for some of these businesses is something that I think we may continue to see and may see. We, I think we're going to see lenders also become a little less warm to the private equity family office community and more warm to the idea of backing a family operator of scale. I've had a couple of lenders already kind of intimate that to me. So I think that's coming. I think also you're going to see franchisors have already said that they're looking for those types of operators, right, in their systems now where it was totally private equity in the past. I think you're going to start seeing that a little bit more too, franchisors supporting the 50-unit operator who owns his or her own business. So it's a bit of a change for the moment, uh, maybe not permanently, but my encouragement to you, if you are one of those types of operators, a family operator who's got a nice sizable business and you've been frustrated over the last few years because you've been losing out you know, by 10 or 15% on the value of these deals, a lot of them unbridled has been selling, I would say, hang in there. This may be your time to, to, to get more competitive. There's another item at play here. Not only do limited partner investors get more conservative, the private equity funds that invest their money are also very heavily tied to interest rates, right? But the other thing is they get decidedly more defensive because they're dispassionate investors and you'd expect them to be. So their contracts become more difficult. The terms of their agreements are more difficult. They probably seek to retrade deals that are under due diligence if they can't get the financing terms that they initially expect, which may or may not be reasonable since they're so aggressive on their financing terms. Their demands of the franchisor are heavier. The indemnification clauses and the escrow agreements and all, you know, and the professional buyers also have typically quality of earnings studies that they do where they bring in a third party, usually accounting firm to comb through the numbers, even if they're audited P&Ls and make sure that their investors are comfortable with the financial assets that they're buying. All of which is great and wonderful, but it adds time and complexity and risk to deals that a lot of these conditions an operator doesn't have. Now, the operator may not, the equity in, except for in their existing business to buy an asset. They're not on a $50 million deal. They may not have $20 million of equity just laying in a bank. They have that equity typically in their existing business and they put it up as collateral to borrow the money in order to do an acquisition. So in a sense, they, they have the equity. They're maybe not huge equity risk, but they clearly don't have a bucket of money like a professionally run group does. And so that's typically the trade-off. You feel like you have less financial risk typically, but in a down market where it's raining and stormy, the financial buyers, the private equity buyers, the family office buyers, I would submit to you without having a full scope of this, but they may be more risky in the trenches during due diligence. They are going to be more scrutinous. The times are going to be longer. The deals are going to take longer to do. And an operator at the same price may be a much easier transaction to do because they're invested with their heart and soul into the business as opposed to just their pocketbook. So these are some things that we'll see. One's not better than the other, but I just wanted to give that encouragement. And it's also an encouragement to the professional investors that are listening to this podcast, right? Like if you are a family office or private equity group and you're looking at buying assets, please know that whereas you probably have rightly felt like you weren't concerned about strategic buyers in the past few years because of your ability to close and your, you know, your financial terms and pricing and all these things, please know that they are becoming a more attractive offer than that, you know, type of buyer than they used to be because of the market conditions that we find ourselves in. So you need to structure your offers accordingly and you need to probably present yourselves to sellers of these businesses 
as in a little more earthy and grainy fashion instead of a Harvard MBA in a tall building someplace with a financial calculator, if that, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, that's a comment here. Let me, let me look at a couple of other things here. Yeah. I had a comment here about valuations potentially dropping. Yeah. I mean, my rhetoric had been, and I'll talk about this a little bit more at RFDC and you'll hear it if you tune in in the next month or so, but I mean, it has been our observation at Unbridled Capital. And I think we're running on now, just so you know, I think we've, we had a closing today, which was a a nice business, $2 million AUV business, uh, Burger King business up in Connecticut area in the Northeast. And uh, last, uh, about a week and a half ago, we had Greg Blankenship had a probably the best Pizza Hut business in America, really, on an AUV perspective in West Texas, mostly. And our friends at uh, Flynn Restaurant Group were the buyers of that business. I haven't worked with Flynn in a while, so it was uh, nice to see them acquire the business. And we have those two deals recently uh, completing, which which is great. But my comment really is we hadn't seen a whole lot of whole lot of uh, transactions happening. Right? It's been slow. It's been slow. And because of that, my comment on is our valuations up, down, or sideways? Gee, Rick, they have to be dropping because interest rates are higher, that kind of stuff. What I was saying over the summer and certainly over the spring and over the summer was there are not a lot of deals on the market. And even though interest rates are going up, there's way more demand than supply. And that's kind of holding these brands in check as well as kind of decent same-store sales and decent EBITDA or profit rollovers on a month-to-month basis or period-to-period basis over last year. And so my comment was that we're not really seeing much degradation in multiples at all. And this was over 13 brands, over about 800 locations that we're selling or doing valuations on, and like, I think, five new assignments over a 60-day period with call it 300 stores. And mind you, in those 13 brands, three, two or three of those brands are non-restaurant brands. Okay. So like my perspective here is not like just one or two restaurant brands, but we weren't seeing really any much of a drop. But I think now as I'm talking to you today in the early part of October, we have like several larger deals on the marketplace. I'm starting to notice a little bit of a change. I would say if our average deal had, you know, throw a number, seven offers on it, maybe now we're getting five. If our average offer was X times EBITDA on a brand, now we might be seeing X minus half a turn. That being said, we've we've sold five Taco Bell companies this year at crazy prices, one of them in historic record-breaking price. We sold a Wingstop business this year at a crazy price. Both of those closed, you know, about 60 to so days ago. If you're in an unbelievable brand, maybe there isn't much degradation yet, unless it's a really big deal and you're selling to a financial buyer. But otherwise, I think I have three or four now examples of deals where we're getting offers where I think there has started to see a shift in downward valuations. Don't be shocked. Of course, that was going to happen because even though the correlation isn't exact, Probably not as exact even as cap rates dropping because interest rates go up. But still, EBITDA multiples are going to go in the opposite direction of interest rates, right? In some regard, because it's just more expensive to borrow money. So that's my kind of commentary. And like I said, that's probably, this is a commentary over probably three or four transactions, 300 stores. It feels like maybe we're seeing on average brands that don't have incredible amounts of like attractiveness, but are just kind of average brands in the marketplace, but decent sized deals. I think we're seeing somewhere around a half turn of EBITDA drop. Now that the thing, the thing that could make it worse, 
is if we get into early 2024 and if we see that there is a huge pickup in supply of franchise businesses for sale. And then it could make it even worse is if we start lapping over fairly strong numbers that have pricing increases in them, and then we start seeing sales and traffic drop a little bit or precipitously. So those are kind of the levers, right? If you see the businesses dropping on a, you know, on a trailing 12-month basis as we move forward, if you see a lot of deal flow in the marketplace and you see more zeroing in on interest rates, I think you could see another, who knows, quarter to a half turn drop of EBITDA in the next three to six months. I mean, it's definitely a, uh, a possibility. Keep an eye on deal flow. Just keep an eye on it. Like I said, I mean, last two years, I mean, you know, we've been down 2022 and 2023. We've probably been down obviously like 40 to 50 percent versus 2021 and over a five year period down like maybe 15 to 20 percent. Right. So you hadn't been the strongest year in 2022 and now 2023. My guess is, though, that with the phone calls coming into me, we're probably going to have twice as much deal flow next year as we had in 2023. That's just a guess. I'm not sure all of it'll close. You never know with the financing markets being a little jittery, but still, fair, you know, still okay, but a little jittery. But I do think it's going to pick up some. And how does that affect you as you might be selling and buying things? It's just important to know. It's important to know. It's a lot of it's brand specific. I can tell you right now, we're probably of the seven or eight new assignments we're considering, one brand is like three of the eight assignments, right? So you're starting to see particular to one specific brand. I don't see anything happening really right now in terms of geography, like geographically focused, like everyone is from the state of, you know, whatever, Oregon who's selling. No, I'm not seeing that. But uh, I do think that the phone calls are picking up. So I think 2024 will be a busy year. If you are a seller of something, you may want to consider moving your timing up or delaying your timing by a year, a year and a half. But I like personally, and this is just one man's opinion, I like the idea of selling something in the next three or four months or selling something two years from now but maybe not in between like six months and two years. That may be a window where we're met with high interest rates, declining sales and increasing deal flow. And that that's going to be a triple whammy if so. I could be totally wrong though, right? It could go the opposite. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I was wrong, <laughs> be a rich man, right? So uh, anyway, those are just some thoughts. Overall though, I, I would say a little bit of a drop, but you know, fairly good. You know, you know things are uh, moving along. I think that's... Uh, going to be mostly it. If you are looking at deal flow and you do not get like unbridled capitals emails, we send out all of our deals over email. If you've told us that you're a buyer of a certain brand and if the seller wants to do a broader auction process, it's important maybe to know that, you know, many sellers say, I don't want a broad auction process when I sell my business. I only want to you know, reach out to 10 people, right? Another seller may say, I want to go to thousands and thousands of people. And some other seller may say, you know, let's limit it a little bit because all of this stuff affects the confidentiality of my business and my employees. So it's important that if you listen to this and want to buy something or sell something, you got to communicate with me because if I don't know your intentions, I can't know how to keep you apprised and in mind of opportunities or what valuations are or what pricing looks like or what your neighboring franchisees might be doing with their businesses. Like all these things are dependent upon us having good communication. So make sure to reach out and you can always find our content online at unbridledcapital.com too. So thanks so much. And we'll catch up with you after RFDC for an exciting episode. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the boiler room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. 
I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.